Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content from all of our podcasts, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There's no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. Hey, this is David Rothkopf. I just wanted to say that I think this upcoming conversation that you're about to listen to between Ryan Goodman and Greg Sargent is excellent. But I want to point out that Greg, who lives outside of Washington, D.C., has been grappling with some technical problems due to storms that have passed through the area and there have been power outages and so forth. And we tried to clean up his audio as much as we can, but we decided we'd leave it in place and let you listen to it. We apologize for the fact that it's a little rough around the edges, but listen closely because their conversation is, it literally could not be more important. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from somewhere outside of New York City. We are joined today by two friends, one I have not seen in a long time, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing well, David. It's great to see you. It's great to see you, and that's a very distinguished uh, setting you're in there. And we are also joined by our friend Greg Sargent of the Washington Post. How are you doing today, Greg? Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, great to have you. Both of you guys have been uh, writing and observing very thoughtfully the January 6th committee process. We had one more hearing this week. I think we have at least one more to go, but we have a a sense of what that process is going to be at this point. I think it's fair to say that the general reaction to the process has been that they've done a good job laying out their case. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about what they need to do in the time remaining, in the sessions remaining, in the session remaining, what they have to achieve that they haven't done yet, in your view. Start with you, Ryan. So I also agree. I think they've done a tremendous job so far. And I guess it depends. I mean, so so much depends, and I think they may, you know, have more information from which they could determine how to proceed. If I had on my wish list, I would wish for them to also have a public hearing on the intelligence failure preceding January 6th and how the FBI didn't uh, prepare the country and and other intelligence agencies, DHS, et cetera. And I think that's a huge question. And is it about implicit or explicit racial bias about what, in terms of white supremacists and what they thought of in terms of threats coming from Trump supporters. It's just it's such a crucial question. It's like the 9-11 question. What explains the intelligence failure? And I don't think 
Christopher Ray is up to the job of doing a true retrospective on his own. He's not doesn't seem interested in that. So I think that would be great for the country. But at the same time, there's so many factors in terms of what they have to weigh and the bandwidth and the ability for the American public to be interested and stay with them on that. Uh, though I do think there'd be a lot of interest cross-partisan on the, the FBI's intelligence failure. So I think that would be, for me, one piece. Um, I think they've made so many inroads on the criminal dimension of it. There's one other piece of it that I think could be helpful for law enforcement and for the country, which is to speak a little bit more about not just the federal crimes, but the state level crimes. And I think that that's because there might very well be action coming out of Georgia. And that would be helpful to educate the public on that as well. And I think they've actually produced a lot of evidence that would be helpful to the district attorney in Georgia. Uh, Interesting suggestions. Greg, what about you? What do you think? Well, one thing I'm really watching for in, in the final hearings, there may be just one more, right? Do we know? Do we know for sure that there will only be one more? I believe the answer is that it's being reported that the one next week will kind of end us for July, and then they will resume later, likely in something like August, September is what's being reported. Right. They clearly want to keep open the possibility of doing more. As they keep telling us over and over, the investigation continues. And by the way, I think it's important that they tell us that. But one thing I'd like to see them do is show with as much clarity as possible that Trump weaponized the mob to finish the procedural coup. I still feel like there's a vulnerability in the story on this front. I saw a Times piece today which really hints at this. It started saying things like, did they draw a direct connection between Trump and the mob? And, you know, I worry that the story is going to be they never drew a direct link. And the truth is they don't have to draw a direct link. They Obviously, if they could show that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were on the phone with Trump's inner circle saying something like, we know that you need us to put pressure on the people at the Capitol to do the right thing, it would be great to have, but you don't need that. All you really need to show to really, I think, complete the dot connecting here is to show that during the violence, Trump refrained from calling off the rioters precisely because he understood the mob to be a weapon to force the completion of the procedural coup. And that, I think, tells a very powerful story and connects the procedural stuff with the violence in a way that has to be done. I think that's a really good point, Ryan. And and I want to follow up on your point as well, but let's pick up on Greg's here. There are a couple of case points in their case that there seems to be a gap. One of them has to do with the direct, you know, sort of the communication of the plot to the masses. There is a kind of set of statements that, you know, tweeting things out and so forth is the way they communicate. There is also, you know, sort of an inherent deniability for Trump and company with regard to that. But one of the things we've heard a little bit about is that there is this war room at the Willard and, you know, there are people there, Giuliani and Roger Stone, and that Mark Meadows wanted to go there. And, and, and to me, that's kind of a black box. Do, do you get that impression as well? Is there part of the story we haven't heard there that, that we ought to hear, Ryan? So first, I just want to say I completely agree with everything Greg said, and I think they're going to be able to do that. I also agree that what you're identifying, David, I think those are the loose 
ends that they didn't tie off in the last hearing. The last hearing was just not as satisfying as all the prior hearings. The pieces that they don't seem to have are about direct communications that would link Trump and or Roger Stone in a certain sense to these militias. And they didn't have as much about, I did think they had information that was flowing from Trump to the militias, but not necessarily back. That's partly because people like Dan Scavino have tried to evade the congressional subpoena. That part, I'm not sure they're going to be able to produce if they weren't ready for presenting it publicly to us in the seventh hearing. That said, just one other thought there would be, that's why we need a Department of Justice to take up the loose ends because they have all the tools that they need to answer those questions that a congressional committee doesn't. And the Department of Justice also has another tool, which is more time than potentially outgoing committee. I think that that's an area where where it'd be good if the committee could close the loop. I want to come back on the DOJ question. But for a moment, let me just go back to your point. Because there's an, you know, another area that's associated with this that, you know, you talk about the intelligence failure, but what about the response failure, particularly from the Department of Defense? The Department of Defense was manned at the top by a bunch of Trump loyalists, and intentionally so. And Mark Esper, the outgoing Secretary of Defense, talked about his worries that the department might be abused. And uh, he's written about it in his book. And there was no response. And there's also, you know, a sort of a backstory where General Flynn's brother is still in the military and he's involved. And you used to work at the Pentagon. Is, is that part of the story here too, Ryan? Yes, uh, there would also be on my list of Boy, do I wish that they would drill down on that and find out what happened and that to inform the American public and also just to inform themselves as a body, Congress to understand what seemed to be an enormous failure on the part of getting a response from the Department of Defense and the National Guard. And just to spell out, there are two potential scenarios. Now, I've written a piece called uh, Crisis of Command in which we favor the more plausible explanation that the Department of Defense and uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff were very worried that Trump would mobilize the National Guard to hold on to power, that once they were in that building, that he would say, okay, now clear the building because we have to shut this all down until we get a handle on what's going on, et cetera. And that was their greater concern. And that actually explains why there was not a response. That's one scenario. And I think there's a lot that actually the evidence goes in that direction. The alternative, best, next best alternative is, no, Trump restricted them and they were restricting themselves from trying to stop the insurrection. So then we need to find out which it is. And both of them have enormous implications for public policy. Even my scenario, which I think is the more plausible one, enormous implication, does that mean that the military did things to, dev- to defy the commander in chief in order to avoid being brought in? by the commander-in-chief to do things that were unconstitutional. That raises concerns about the chain of command and civilian oversight. So, yes, I think a huge question that so far we've got nothing out of the committee on that. Uh, We do have a little bit that came out of prior hearings by other committees, but hopefully that at a minimum is in the final report. 
One of the things that we've heard about in the past few days is that the Department of Justice was surprised by the testimony of Cassidy Hutchison. And um, earlier, there were some hints they were responding to other other revelations, uh, you know, of the of the committee regarding false electors and so and so forth. Why is the Department of Justice lagging the committee? Why is the very big, resource-rich Department of Justice lagging this comparatively small, hastily sort of set up group that has very limited investigative capacity? And what does that tell you about how our justice system is working at the moment? They just don't really want to do this. I think that that's a really terrible sign. Some people tell us, some very smart and and observers have said there's little question that DOJ is already running a full-fledged criminal investigation. But when you see something like that about Cassidy Hutchinson, you have to be at least a little skeptical. I suppose it's possible that Cassidy Hutchinson was just such a gold strike by the committee that it just vaulted them way ahead of where DOJ is. But I don't know. I, I, I did not take that as a good sign. Well, Ryan, let's just pick up on that. The notion that Cassidy Hutchison, who was the principal aide to Mark Meadows, who was one of the men at the center of this, would be a gold strike or surprise to the Department of Justice, strikes me as really worrisome. You know, I mean, she she would be on the, you know, on anybody's, you know, sort of the way, you know, if anybody knows how the White House works. You talk about the principals and then you talk to their assistants and you may start with their assistants who are, you know, perhaps more vulnerable in this kind of a case. What do you think of that? And and what do you think of these stories of how the DOJ is reacting to the committee? I agree with you. I think that they would have if they were really trying to pursue all the avenues and had Trump as an obvious uh, target for the investigation. They would speak to these people and they would have come across Cassidy Hutchinson and potentially many others because they would also have the ability to subpoena people in ways that would happen very quickly <laughs> compared to the committee. And just to put a couple other pieces on this, you know, that New York Times piece that said that they were surprised by uh, Cassidy Hutchinson also included this idea that because her name had not appeared in any court filings, that's wrong. Her name had appeared in a court filing uh, by the committee in April. They included parts of her written transcript, transcribed interviews, and the parts that they included were significant. They included the parts in which the White House counsel had warned Mark Meadows and Giuliani in person that the alternative slate of electors scheme was legally unsound. And I wrote about it, and other people wrote about it. Norm Eisen described Cassidy Hutchinson as possibly the, ne- the John Dean for the committee hearings before the committee hearings began in June. So the Department of Justice should not have been surprised by any of it. If they were doing their own work ahead of time, they they wouldn't be. I think it's very concerning and it is a strong indicator that they have not had Trump as a target and they have not potentially even, and I've thought about this a lot, potentially even interviewed people from the White House, which is exactly who you would want to interview if you were doing a robust investigation of, you know, individual number one, and which is proven by the New York Times's Katie Berners report from just a few days ago that is a bombshell saying that that's exactly right. They didn't want to mention his name in the senior leadership of the Department of Justice. And I have every reason to think that her reporting is superlatively accurate. So yes, 
you know, the back and forth between the DOJ and the committee over sharing of the transcripts with the DOJ, it's hard to know exactly what's going on there, but it's nice to see that there's now going to be a sharing, at least for the alternative slate of electors, information that the committee has collected and those transcripts. And we know that already the Department of Justice does have an active criminal investigation into the alternative slate of electors. One last point on that is, which I do think if they follow the evidence will obviously lead to Donald J. Trump as the node within the network of that criminal conspiracy. Thanks to the committee's investigation, which brought forth, for example, the head of the RNC, Ronald McDaniel, saying under oath that Donald Trump with John Eastman got on a call to ask her directly to have the RNC help coordinate the alternative slate of electors. So as long as the DOJ does its work, follows the evidence, wrote in a um, with alacrity, it'll get there. But I'm not quite confident that they will, especially based on uh, Katie Brenner's report. According to my calendar, alacrity passed a few months ago. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, the fact that they haven't interviewed these people and it's already 18 months, right? That's just incredible. You know, Ryan, you and I talked about this two years ago, practically, you know, um, a year and a half ago, right in the wake of this whole thing. And, you know, there is this whole sort of movement out there, you know, not just on Twitter and social media, but people writing about it and so forth that are like, trust Merrick Garland, trust DOJ. We wouldn't know anything if they did do something, which, by the way, I think is is not necessarily true. And, every, you know, everything's fine. But of course, if nothing is appearing to be happening, one of the possibilities is nothing is happening. And there seems to be some evidence to that effect. And, you know, one of the things, and I, I've heard you talk about this on, on TV and, and, you know, that I would add to the list that you just made was the column that Andrew Weissman wrote in the New York Times about the overall approach to the case, which, you know, you can paraphrase it or rephrase it. But, you know, what I got was they're sort of doing ground up and sort of going at the, the sort of the underlings who stormed the Capitol and focusing on January 6th and not doing hub and spoke and focusing on the breadth of the conspiracy that was run by the White House since before the election day, as they tried to tee up the possibility in the minds of people that the election was rigged. Are you beginning to despair? You know, when Weissman, for example, was on TV the other night, he said, yeah, I've spoken to people in the Justice Department, and essentially they acknowledged that they weren't doing what he was saying. At least that's what I got. I mean, there are a couple of reasons to not despair in that sense, which is one, Katie Brenner's reporting says that Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, quote unquote, jolted the Justice Department into new, a new way of thinking. But, you know, if you read the rest of the actual sentence in the New York Times, it says jolted them into discussing, you know, like having conversations as though, well, finally, they're having a conversation about it where they can mention his name, Trump's name. But I do think that maybe that's shifted them. The committee, the production of evidence is so enormous. It's an avalanche of evidence pointing towards indictable material on a range of different crimes and different parts of the spokes of the hub and spoke schemes. And as long as they follow the evidence, I do think it'll lead them right to Trump. So that includes the alternate slate of electors investigation. And it also includes the recent revelations of an investigation, at least coming out of the DOJ's inspector general of Jeffrey Clark, who, if you indict Jeffrey Clark 
I do not know how J Donald J. Trump could not be referenced at a minimum as his co-conspirator, that they worked hand in glove for the crimes for which Jeffrey Clark could be held criminally liable. So I do think it leads there. And that's why I actually even think it's not even a question of will Garland proactively indict, but it's actually more will Garland proactively slow down or will the Justice Department slow down the investigation so that it avoids where it will otherwise naturally end, which is with Trump. And I agree with you as well that there are ways that we would know by now if they were doing, and it's not just you know doing the inferences and reading the tea leaves. By one example, the Katie Brenner report, it seems very obvious she's getting her sourcing inside the Justice Department. She knows things about the meetings that Lisa Monaco and Garland are in. She has the memo that was presented by the former U.S. attorney for D.C. That is not her relying on lawyers of witnesses or defendants. So, And she's impeccable in her reporting on the Justice Department's internal workings. So I think there's all the reasons to despair, but maybe there are these uh, two lines of optimism. Greg, you know, is this one of these instances where we only discover that bad judgments were made or effectively justice was misserved after the fact? And we're in January of next year and the Justice Department hasn't done anything and the Republicans have won the House and they've dissolved the January 6th committee and they're holding their own committee and they're threatening to investigate Biden and Garland. And the moment was lost. Do you fear that the moment can be lost, Greg? Well, I do. And I'd like to throw out a question, if that's all right, to you guys, um, because what Ryan said kind of prompted a thought, which is there's got to be a reason that Liz Cheney keeps dropping these huge hints at the end of these hearings. She's now done it twice. She said both times that there had been witness tampering, or at least she strongly suggested there had been witness tampering, and that they would take this very seriously. She kept saying that over and over in both these instances. In the most recent instance, she said they had referred it to the Justice Department. And so what I take from that, and I'd like to, to know whether you guys agree with this, I think she's seeing the things we're seeing and wondering what the hell's going on. And essentially by saying these things in such an enormously public way, she's not just letting people know that they shouldn't engage in witness tampering, though it's probably that in part. She's also saying, hey, American public, keep an eye on whether the Justice Department is on top of this. What do you guys think? I think so. Um, I think so. And um, there's nothing stopping. There should be nothing stopping uh, Christopher Ray and or Merrick Garland from making a public statement that witness tampering will not be tolerated. This is not something to be so quiet about. Oh, they're going to maybe quietly investigate if they are investigating at all the witness tampering. It's a public statement that they will protect the sanctity of an enormously important select committee investigation into one of the greatest threats to the <laughs> to the country, but nothing, nothing so far. And it's, as you say, Greg, it's the second hearing in which she has telegraphed it as a very important priority for the committee and an ongoing possible criminal activity trying to obstruct their work. Yeah, I would add, you know, again, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of tea leaf reading here, but some of it's not tea leaf. Some of it's what we're seeing. Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino subpoenas, they were not prosecuted for ignoring the committee to testify, 
even though they don't have any executive privilege claim because the president of the United States said they don't. And he is the one who determines that. And we also know that, for example, Robert Mueller, you may remember, our one-time savior, came up with a very strong set of cases indicating Trump obstructed justice. By the way, in ways that were completely consistent with things that we've seen subsequently in this case. And tick-tock, tick-tock, every day of this year, some of those cases pass their statute of limitations because the statute of limitations is five years. We've passed the statute of limitations and firing James Comey, which was as clear a case of obstruction of justice as you can imagine. And so there's a lot of evidence that at the very least, this department is reluctant to go after the president. It might be a re- you know, reason of principle, although I think it would be misguided principle. I would take one other bit of evidence in that, that this committee hasn't really wanted to share all of their evidence with the Department of Justice, which suggests to me that they don't really trust or feel like they're working hand in glove with the Department of Justice. The notion that there is somehow an adversarial relationship between this committee and the DOJ on a matter so central to the survival of the American idea is astonishing, is absolutely astonishing. And yet here we are. And you know, there are a few lone voices, and Liz Cheney has has proven to be one of the clearest. And among all the people on the committee, she's the one who on a regular basis says, let us remind you, here's the case, here's the narrative, here are the facts. And she does that thing, you know, that a lawyer, you know, is supposed to do. Well, Ryan, you're a law professor, so maybe you should be the one saying it. But it seems to me, you know, she says, here's what I'm going to tell you. Then she tells you. And then she says, here's what I just told you. You know, so she she's trying to make it as clear as possible. And that's why I, you know, I think in the best case, the Justice Department is a day late and a dollar short in this investigation. And as a consequence, I'm I'm worried about the future of it. But in the worst case, I think there are going to be big gaps or, or even worse than that. What, what do you think of the responses of Brian and, and me, Greg? What do you think? I agree completely. I think what you said was actually really exceptionally important about the centrality of this to the survival of the American idea. The fact that there could be among the two main investigative bodies trying to get to the bottom of an effort to to literally overthrow democracy permanently uh, is kind of unthinkable. Now, one thing I would say, and, and I'd be curious to know whether you guys agree with this, I feel like we don't really know the full story of why there's this kind of breakdown between the January 6th committee and the Justice Department. It seems plausible to me that it's not as alarming as it might seem on the surface. It could be maybe the committee wants to really develop certain things before it passes anything along to, to the Justice Department or something like that. And, and I, I don't think we need to be necessarily that alarmed about it. Do you? I mean, I do think there's something disconcerting about the way in which this is broken out into the public, uh, the tension between the two institutions, and that it's also alarming in part because I think that it is, in fact, that they're not both trying to 
aggressively go after the case. That would be kind of nice, like if they were competitive in the ways that sometimes congressional investigations and the DOJ are, that they both want to get at it. I do think that part of the reason that the committee might be more reluctant is to say like, hey, either do your own work or why are we sharing it with you when you don't even have a grand jury assembled to look at Trump's threatening phone calls and whatnot in Georgia? Do you you know, have a grand jury assembled and are you actually investigating Trump for the pressure campaign against Pence? So why, why are we sharing that with you and all of our product if you're not even serious? Or are you, I don't know if that's what's going on in part and that they would otherwise want to present the case and then maybe presenting the case will compel the Justice Department to move. So I do think there's part of that. So I, it's, but it's difficult to know. There's, it's difficult to understand exactly what was behind the initial reluctance on the committee. Not to not share, but at least I think the idea was that they would share according to their own timeline. And that's not a good position for them to have been in. It doesn't sit well, at least with the American public, that is saying, don't give the Department of Justice another excuse as to why they're not acting, that they're waiting for your information. Well, excellent points. I wish we had time to go on to discuss this further. Uh, Listening to both of you speak, one other thought strikes me, and that is, what if this committee didn't exist? What if we weren't having these hearings? Where would we be right now as a country discussing this coup attempt? We wouldn't know most of what we know. And the general consensus in the country would be it's not being pursued. And there would be a greater sense of license among the people behind this effort, Trump and company. And uh, so whatever else the committee might do, getting this out in the open is, is, is profoundly important because, frankly, this is something that does need to be discussed and explored on a public national basis. In any event, hopefully you guys will come back soon as we know more on this. Both of your essential voices, and I really encourage everybody to follow both Ryan and Greg closely. And um, what we're going to do here, this is a special two for podcasts. So after the break, we're going to come back and I have a conversation with David Sanger in Jerusalem about the president's trip, both to Israel and, and his next move on to Saudi Arabia. And uh, it's a great conversation. And so if you're a member, you can listen to it. And if you're not a member, go sign up and become a member so you can listen to it because it's real important. In any event, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Greg. Thanks to all of you in the general public for listening. And for those of you who are members, please stand by.